Times get tough for you if they don't. Today is Monday, October 29, 2012. This is episode 1008 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Monday, glum day, and Monday, waiting for Sandy the Hurricane. We'll talk about that a little bit today. Uh, I'm not going to do a storm prepping show. It is Monday, so this is your feedback. This is all emails, comments, questions, videos, stuff like that has come to me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, the email address to reach me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It's not just for work. It's not a fake email. It's not something that goes through a screener. It's my email. If you send it there, I will get it. I cannot respond to them all. But if you're sending it for a show like this, the way to make sure you get in the queue for review, use the formula. Video for Jack, comment for Jack, question for Jack, something like that. It'll get in the queue for review for the show. Get about three to four hundred of them a day. Some days are light days. I get about two hundred. Some days are heavy days. It's like four. Average is probably three. I cover about ten a week. Can't do them all. Can't even respond to them all. But I do see them all. And a lot of times, one thing you guys need to know about your feedback emails with, with, with articles and stuff, even when they don't get on the show, they do shape f- future shows. They do provide me information, knowledge, and feedback. Uh, they, a lot of them I can put more review into them. And I just go, this is not something that's a standalone topic. So keep them coming. I'm not complaining about the volume. I love the volume. If it doubles that, it'd be great. I just want you to understand you're not being ignored. There's no way I can possibly respond to every email I get. I do my best. But again, I want you guys to know, especially with personal things and all you want to send me, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com is the only email I really use. Even the other email addresses I have, they just forward there. All right. Um, one more quick thing on that. I don't care if it's a personal email. I don't care if it's for a show. I don't care what it is. If you want to get a response from me, the smartest thing you can do is get your statement, your question, your comment into a single sentence and begin the email with that sentence. If you write me four paragraphs and the first paragraph tells me how much you love the show and the second paragraph starts telling me your life history, I'm sorry. It's not that I don't care. It's I have a, a temporal deficit, right? I only have so much time in the day with the volume of email I have. That email's getting deleted and I feel bad about it for about three seconds and I'm on to the next one. Just trying to help you out. Uh, I don't want to come off like a jerk about this or anything. It's just if you think about 400 emails and if you take Five minutes apiece to have to read through them and take 400 times five and then figure out how many hours that takes up. I'm done and I haven't even done a show. So just letting you guys know on that. Before we get into your, your uh, emails for this week, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, JM Bullion. You know, when I brought on uh, a new silver and gold vendor, I wanted to make sure I did something for you. I wanted to make sure I got you the best pricing I could, and I didn't want to deal with a giant company. I want to deal with a small, well, you know, well-established, family-run enterprise that was going to take care of my audience like they need to be taken care of. Not just a number. I wanted you to be a name uh, in in dealing with uh, the vendor, and I found that in JM Bullion. Uh, I found that in a, in a vendor that'll save you a lot of money too. If we look at our old sponsor versus this one with buying, let's say, Silver Eagles. On a roll, you'd save about 80 bucks on a roll of 20. That's, that's a significant savings. And they're even better in price than like Monex and Atmex, like two of the biggest silver and gold houses, uh, out there today. 
So check them out today, jambullion.com. Next up today is uh, Survival Gear Bags. Survival Gear Bags actually was created uh, after being inspired by the initial work I did with the Survival Podcast. They've been around, I'd say, uh, a year less than the, the length of the show. They've been supporting the Member Support Brigade for a couple of years. When a sponsorship slot came open, I went to Kelly Grinot and I said, hey, or Kelly John Doe, I always say his name wrong because it's spelled French, but Kelly John Doe, and I said, hey, do you want this, this spot? And they said, yeah, we'll take it. So they're a new sponsor, and they're doing a great job for us. They have some really cool bags uh, and some really cool gear to go with those bags. And they have a really cool sale going on for uh, TSP. Uh, not just the members brigade for everybody this month. I put out a little post about it uh, uh, last week, so you might want to check for that on the blog. There's a stuff with knowledge and a stuff with gear option. Both of them are really cool survival gear bags. And hey, one thing you need to know about Kelly John Doe and survival gear bags when they put these specials out for everybody. If you're MSV and you have a discount, your discount can go on top of that. And that's the case this time around. Uh, you can get one of those great deals and then get another 10% off with your discount code. Check them out today, survivalgearbags.com. Uh, next up, remember, check out TSP Copper for some really cool copper coins and consider joining the Members Brigade. That's all I'll say about that today. I want to get into the main topic today. The first one, actually, I didn't get anybody in the audience sent me this. I, I've been listening and hearing rumblings about this, and then I woke up this morning, and on my TV comes a report from Russia today. And uh, I, I got here at the office today and saw if I could find it. And for once, the one I see online that I want to play for you is available online. So I have a little video from Russia today about what's going on with Germany and their concerns over their own gold reserves, much of which is being held here in the United States. So I want to play this for you and then come back and give you my thoughts on it. Time now for business here in RT. Katie joins us, and Germany is going treasure hunting. Tell us more. Yeah, Anissa, while debt-stricken Eurozone members beg Germany for help, the biggest European economy is not completely sure about its own financial safety. Now, the country has decided to check up on its gold reserves held abroad, something that has actually never been carried out before. And Maria Finoshina explains more for us. What you can see behind me is the headquarters of the Bundesbank, Germany's central bank in Frankfurt. The building may look ordinary and plain, but don't be mistaken. This is where, exactly behind these walls, the country's gold is stored and watched carefully 24-7. Though not all of it is here. It's not even elsewhere in Germany. Ironically, the majority of the nation's strategic resources is held outside the country, in France, Great Britain, and more than 60% in New York. Germany owns the world's second biggest gold reserves with a total of 3,400 tons worth billions of euros. After the Second World War, the country's infrastructure wasn't up dealing with such a valuable haul of gold bars. And then at the time of the Cold War, the feeling was that it would be too risky to keep it right next to the hem of the Iron Curtain. But today, both arguments are equally outdated. Second World War is a distant memory, while more than 20 years have already passed since the fall of the Berlin Wall. And Germany's gold is still where it's been all alone. Its exact whereabouts are a hot topic here. Can it truly be considered a national reserve while it's not even at home? And perhaps even more importantly, can the country be sure that gold still exists? In a recent twist, Germany's own federal auditors admitted the gold's never been physically checked by the Bundesbank. The banks hit back saying there can be no doubt in the security of foreign deposit sites. 
But some experts here in Germany say the country has become a victim of its good relations with the U.S., daring not to rock the boat and ask questions in case it shows a lack of trust and takes some of the golden shine off their friendship. So no one here in Germany can really be sure that the country responsible for bailing out its neighbors can bail out itself. Briefing Oshna RT from Frankfurt in Germany. Now, there's probably a lot of people in the conspiracy world that'll tie this to the whole, you know, is there really gold in Fort Knox thing? Um, which, could there be less gold in Fort Knox than they tell us? Yeah, but I'm not real worried about that. I think that's a little bit of an overblown thing. I think there's probably plenty of gold in Fort Knox. And this has nothing to do with Fort Knox. This is... Uh, Gold is being held in the uh, in the reserve, uh, the federal res- by the by the reserve banks uh, for Germany, and this is being done in not just the United States but other countries. And what Germany's basically doing right now is doing an accounting or an audit of its own gold reserves. So, you know, they have a certain amount of gold held, let's say, in France or in the United States or anywhere else in the world, and saying, you know, we want a physical accounting of our gold. We want to be sure. That it's there, and it, it, as you've heard, this is something that's never been done before. Now, there's a couple things at play here. One, and this would be really bad, is if like, okay, some of it's not there, and, and that is possible. But I'm not going to speculate on that because you know, if they're going to do a physical accounting, we're going to find out, and then we can actually discuss what it really means instead of speculating on something that probably isn't going to happen. Um, because if any country has done this, they'll probably cover their ass by using somebody else's to do it with. Uh, because in many instances, gold is held for one country by another country. So they have title to the gold, but the other person's holding it. If you have an economic collapse, that takes on a whole new world, doesn't it? Because the pers- what do they tell you to try to sell you gold and silver? If you don't hold it, you don't own it. All right? So if there was ever a time of conflict, right, that, so, but let all of that go. Because let's look at the more pressing issue. I keep telling you that I think that the long-term plan is to move the entire global economy back to a gold-backed currency. And to do so with a revaluation of the debt against gold. And that would allow nations like Germany, nations like the United States, to significantly devalue their currency without significantly devaluing their currency. And you say, how the hell do you do that? Well, what you do is you set a reserve requirement that effectively generates a, a completely wacky number. At this time, people would think it's wacky, like, Five thousand, uh, you know, dollars to an ounce of gold, or ten thousand dollars to an ounce of gold, or more. And, and it's it's interesting when you look at uh, the debt. And I've got a show I'm going to do deeply on this for you in the future, where the guy helped me do some work about figuring out what gold reserves people are holding, how much debt they have, and what percentage of their existing debt they can cover with gold. But the numbers don't start to really significantly revalue debt until you start pushing up to around $10,000 an ounce. And there's some other things that can be done. A nation could conceivably print a shitload of money to cover debt with right before they implement this gold, new gold standard, pay down some of the debt with fiat money, 
cover the other debt with gold money, basically hit a giant mashed reset button, and then let the inflation play out over a few years through their economy. And we're talking significant inflation. We're talking 10, 15, 20% per annuum until everything sort of balances out. Now, the hyperinflationary people are never happy with that. They never think that's bad enough. They think, oh, it's going to be, you know, like Zimbabwe, $5 billion for a Coca-Cola, whatever. No, no. Not on a global scale and not with a nation with as much power, as much money, as much resources, as much military capability, as much everything as the United States government has. They'll have to figure out a way out of this trap, but that's the way they're going to do it. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be good, and this is what the conspiracy theorists and the gold bugs don't understand. 10% inflation per year is an economic disaster that the average person cannot possibly conceive of. First of all, on some levels, if it's not done exactly right and exactly the right time with the exactly right reset, and certain controls have to be built into things like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and any type of government relief benefit program that's inflation-adjusted, because the expense of those programs could outweigh the reset. Think about this, because every year, seniors are given a raise in their benefits based on the inflation rate. So at some point, to make this work, you got to cap that. I'm not saying it should be done. I'm not, This is not against seniors. This is the economic reality on the ground of what's going to have to be done. What you're going to have to see is a massive scale back in government programs, a massive inflationary curve, and a complete revaluation of the U.S. currency. It's the only way out of this. There is a point where you can't just keep going up with the debt. There is a point where people go, 25 trillion, no, we, we, no. There's a point where even the average person, excuse me, but even the average idiot goes, I don't think this works anymore. And see, that's where an economy falls apart. You can do almost anything with money, almost anything with money, and sell the bullshit to the people and still make the economy work because the money doesn't get its value from anything other than the economy, even if it's done with gold. Gold is a master illusionary tool. If we just had gold to cap the currency, bullshit, because you can set the ratios anywhere you want, right? I mean, that's, that's a reality as long as there's a currency. And using gold, physical gold, and handing people gold nuggets or something like that, or gold coins, that's not coming back. They're never going to let that come back. It's never going to happen, and it wouldn't be as great as a lot of people think it would be. It might be better, but it wouldn't be all nirvana. What they're going to do to this nation is going to be like a nightmare visit to a proctologist who has a glove coated in barbed wire. This is our economic future. It's not the end of the world. It's a massive shift. And it's exactly... And, and here, people say to me, how are you so sure? Well, first of all, I'm not. I'm not sure. I would put this in the very high probability category about how this shift happens. And the reason that I say that is it's the only way to go now. And historically, this has been what's happened. You have a, a, a economy... Uh, of a of a major power or even a group of collective global power that runs on a commodity-based money. 
Eventually, it reaches a limit to what that commodity-based currency will allow to happen. doesn't matter if it's based on timberland or gold or silver. There's a cap. There is an effective cap at some point where we can't just keep manufacturing more money. And the desire of the economy to grow exceeds the monetary supply. So the, the initial move is to adapt to market forces, which are there would be more people working and spending money if there was more money for them to earn. There's a lot of value in the economy right now that's not being harnessed. Okay, that's why they do this. So they switch over to a commodity currency, which can, or I mean, a, a, a fiat or a debt backed or, or you know, government issue at will, however you want to call it, currency. They flip to that. A lot of times they keep a commodity component to keep a sanity check, which is probably the best way to do it. A fractional gold reserve scenario. So at least 20% of the currency has to be backed by gold. It's much more elastic. Okay, The currency is much more elastic and adaptable to the true demands of the economy. The gold reserve can come up and be a greater percentage. It can drop all the way down to a certain point. But at some point it anchors it and says we have to keep our, 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 our head on things here. Now, here's the, here's the other side. A responsible government, <laughs> if we could find one, or a responsible governing body of the currency, like the Federal Reserve is supposed to be, could effectively create that containment and make a very sustainable long-term economy. But what happens is, as soon as there's pain and any danger of the, even a tiny loss of control by government or by the governing body, the Fed, the temptation to use the power of monetary creation is so great that it cannot be resisted. It's like, you know, you, you, if I can touch things and turn them to gold, I'm going to have a lot of gold. Right? And that's what they end up doing. And eventually, that scenario plays out to the ridiculous, where debt becomes so burdensome that the interest payments on the debt itself run away. The economy becomes no longer sustainable, and you can't reset back to the beginning of the fiat phase. You have to phase out, so the only place to go is back to a commodity. That could be gold, that could be gold and silver, that could be gold, silver, and copper. That could be a commodity basket, which is gold, silver, mine reserves, agricultural reserves, that, that, that values out there. There's a lot of ways to do it, but you've got to go back to something like that. But what people will buy into, and what's what we need with a currency, is agreement, and gold is what they'll buy into the most easy. We could sell that to the people, that this will fix the problem, take the golden pill, and everything will be better. And it will reset, cause a massive wealth grab. It's going to be a huge stealing of wealth because those that are sitting on the massive reserves will suck the wealth out of the old money and into the new and become the issuers and sellers of the new money back into the economy. Uh, so you got to understand, that's what these people do. They sell money into the economy. That's what the Fed does. That's what the banks do. They're selling money. There, and that, I mean, that's the, the best way to make it simple and understandable is how profitable could you be if your job was to sell money? <laughs> and, and they'll sell you your own wealth back over a period of time and they'll tax you to defer the, the, the former debt obligations. And they'll do that through inflation. And the inflation will be worse in the United States and Europe than anywhere else in the world because we're holding the most debt. Uh, let's go ahead and take some emails that are maybe on a little bit better subject today. Maybe better is not the word. Maybe um, happier is the word. Um, but uh, Joe sends me an email. says, Jack, you're only allowed to have one stove. 
It can either be your rocket stove or your Jamaican coal pot. Which do you choose, or would you choose another option and why? Um, there's a billion types of stoves out there, right? So I'm going to go ahead and play the game of being limited to the two choices that Joe gave me. And for those that haven't seen them, I did a whole bunch of videos using one set of videos using a Jamaican coal pot, which kind of looks shaped like a wok, and it's got a stand and kind of a, an air inlet underneath it, and you burn charcoal in it. And I did a whole other series of videos using the EcoZoom uh, bi-fuel rocket stove, where I can either burn wood or other biomass in a rocket stove fashion or close up some of the vents and burn charcoal and, sh and slow cook. And the answer is right now anyway. If you made me pick between those two, I would choose the EcoZoom stove. And I'll, I'll give you the reasons why they're very simple. Um, I can slow cook fairly well with the EcoZoom using charcoal. And I can cook hot and fast uh, with the EcoZoom using wood. I can also slow cook pretty well with the EcoZoom just by controlling how much wood I'm feeding in. Uh, it takes a little bit more care and, and, and concern, and I have to pay a little bit closer attention than throwing charcoal in there, but I can do it. And the, uh, I mean, the big reason is because I can take the EcoZoom stove, and if I have charcoal, I'm good to go. If I have wood, I'm good to go. If I have corn cobs, I'm good to go. Right. If I have the coal pot, I pretty much need charcoal. I could cook with wood in it, but it's going to burn way too hot because it's way too open. The advantage of the coal pot so far is, well, I can grill over it. I can throw a little grill on top of that sucker, and I got an awesome little hibachi, and I can do straight-up grilling. But I don't need a stove for that. Right? If I want to grill over wood or charcoal, I get some rocks and a grate. And I can, I mean, most of us that grew up camping and fishing as kids did plenty of cooking over, you know, four or five rocks and something strung across it. So I don't need it to grill. I can't grill with the rocket stove because the, the, the heat is too focused to a, a small area. But I can get something like a, uh, you know, a griddle, uh, a ribbed griddle with cast iron, and I can do a reasonable approximation of it. So to me, it's more flexible. It gives me more options. It burns more types of fuel. Um, I wouldn't say either one has much of a portability advantage. The, the, the coal pot's a little bit lighter weight, um, but it's not that much lighter, and the, it, the coal pot's a little more shaped, so if I have to take it in a car or something like that, it, it, it probably fits a little bit better. And it's a little bit easier to keep clean than the coal pot, which gets all gnarly and all, because it's a very small combustion chamber and a very efficient burn. So, so I would pick out of the two the EcoZoom. Fortunately, you know, this is kind of like when we do the experiment. If you had to choose between you're, you're going into the wilderness and you're going to have to survive on your own for, you know, uh, a month and you can either have, uh, you know, a, a centerfire rifle, a 22 long rifle or a shotgun, which one would you take and why? It's a thought experiment. We don't actually have to actually pick one gun or one cooking tool. And I think that that's great because I think just like a shotgun and a centerfire rifle have very different Uh, reasons for their existence, very different things that they do best. The coal pot and the rocket stove have very different things that they do best. I mean, if you want to make a big pot of stew, uh, you can do it with a rocket stove, but you're going to spend a lot of time paying attention to it. With the coal pot, you know, I can put a big, huge load of coal in there and let it burn down to a point when I sit the pot into the coals, I actually slow it down a lot and I get a real slow, nice, even, Beautiful cast iron, you know, stew cooked out of it, similar to what you get when you do it in a fire. 
So it's way better for that. You know, so it's it's about what you really want out of it. The other thing I'll say is I, I learned about the Jamaican coal pot from this show called Jamaican Food Made Easy. It was this Jamaican guy that had moved to London and went back to Jamaica, a lot like Luke's Vietnam, but Jamaican instead of Vietnamese, uh, and went back there to like go to his roots and learn how to cook. And he did just a couple different things with the coal pot. And I've never really found a good resource for all the different things you can do with a coal pot. And my understanding is like these ladies that cook in Jamaica that use this thing, they can do anything. Uh, they can effectively, you know, bake bread, uh, you know, fry bacon and eggs, make what they call peas and rice. So I think that maybe I would change my, my opinion if I become more experienced with the coal pot. It's just hard to find resources. So it's all for me playing around with it now is just that didn't really work out really well. And so we'll try this next time. So, uh, that's my thoughts on that one. Let's take another one. Here's another question. Uh, ben says, I'm wondering how practical a generator is compared to things like candles and a fireplace or a wood stove for heat and light. Yeah, you wouldn't have TV or the Internet, but there's something to be said for a quiet night with the wife and a board game by candlelight in front of the fireplace with a glass of wine. Then again, you folks in the South, I suppose it's worth storing all that fuel and equipment to run the A.C., Of course, then there's the fridge and freezer. Maybe one could keep a few extra blocks of ice milk jugs in the freezer to keep things cool during a blackout. Just spitballing here because it seems expensive and kind of a pain to store fuel and purchase and maintain a generator. Sorry to Mr. Harris. No offense to him uh, and what he does. I'm not ready to explain to my wife why we need a generator yet. Thanks for what you do. Um, yeah, try that for a week or, or two. And some people in the Northeast, you're, you might be about to get the opportunity They try it for a week or two. Do you need a generator if your power goes off at night and it's not 100 degrees outside and you're going to be without power for a day? No. No. Um, do you need a generator? No. Is it nice to have? Yeah. Now, as far as keeping the freezer and the refrigerator cold, uh, Ben, you need to go back and you need to listen to Steve Harris's shows on dealing with a blackout. Um, where he specifically talks about how to do it with uh, just an inverter, your vehicle, an extension cord, and an ice machine, all of which you can buy for far less than a, a decent quality generator uh, and have a lot of flexibility there. So uh, Steve is not telling you to get a generator uh, specifically. He's telling you if you're going to get a generator, here's how to pick one and here's why. Uh, and here's what it'll do for you and here's what it won't do for you based on its sizing requirements. Um I'll tell you that I have found, especially with where we live, the 6,500-watt generator that I have and the extension cords and, uh, uh, you know, all the, uh, the things that allow me to pl plug multiple uh, outlets in, like, you know, multi-outlet plugs, uh, the Tupperware bin we keep it in, the, we have these, uh, these plastic clamps to keep all of the cords nicely bundled up, and being able to yank that generator out of the shed, Fire it up, run those cords, throw them through the window. We have a little piece of two-by-four cut that leaves a little gap, so the window's basically closed. There's enough space for the cords to come through without getting smashed. And being able to run that stuff has been the most beneficial prep that we've made. We've used it more than any other thing that we store. I mean, I would say the only thing that would get close to it is 
like vehicle preps, like making sure that you're, you know, making sure your spare tires got air in it, make sure, you know, for, for, for minor flat situations where you're just trying to get to a repair shop, you have like fix a flat. We also have a little air compressor and a plug kit that I can deal with, you know, stuff like that. You know, tires I've had plenty of times where I've had to fix a tire on a vehicle. Um, so that has pro been used probably just a bit about as much. Just about anything else that we have is, you know, for the acute situation, we might use it day to day, but it's not really fixing a problem. It's like we eat what we store and store what we eat. So we can pull out that can, uh, of the jar of canned tomatoes that we canned up and use it now and, and just make that part of our life. But if we need the food to be good for a long time without power, we can. Uh, I keep a chest freezer and a full size refrigerator freezer. And when we fire that generator up, uh, I'm not even trying to tax it too much. So I just basically run a cord back to where the chest freezer is, and that cord runs to where the refrigerator is. One of the main cords come in there with a multi-outlet for stuff in the kitchen, and I plug the refrigerator into it, and we'll let that run for a couple hours, and I'll plug the freezer in. And you could run the, those things for a couple hours you know, every four or five hours, and you're not going to have any problem keeping everything cool. Um, it, it's, the, it's the best investment we've ever made. Um, when the storms come and all, it gives us a tremendous sense of peace and being, you know, there's nothing wrong with a night by the fireplace playing a board game with a glass of wine. That sounds really good. Uh, you can do that if you want to, anytime you want to, you don't need to have power go out to do it. It might be a good excuse to do it. And it's definitely, you know, the case when, if we're in the middle of the night, like let's say like eight o'clock, eight o'clock at night and the power goes off. A lot of times we're like, it's not worth dragging the generator out for this. We'll call the thing on our cell phone for the utility company and see. But when they're like, your estimated repair will be by 8 o'clock tomorrow evening, then we know it's going to be three days and they're lying already. And then out, out all that stuff comes. So uh, to me, is it, is it more practical? Absolutely it's more practical. Is, Is it something you have to have, and can you compensate with other things? Absolutely, and I would tell you you probably would have, unless you're on a farm or something, you have to keep things like pumps and stuff running, um, probably less need of it if you live in Vermont or something like that, right? You're not going to die of heat, right? You live down here in Texas, and the power goes off for three or four days. When you're having temperatures in the hundreds, you're going to be glad you have a generator, just saying. Let's take another one. Here's a good one. This is from Dan. Dan says, actually, it's from Reed. So I don't know if it's Dan or Reed. One the email says Dan and it's signed Reed. So we'll call you Reed, Dan, and we'll call you Dan Reed, whatever. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, would you please give your thoughts on using eBay and Craigslist to generate some extra cash? I've been a longtime listener and have always picked up things and sold them on the internet to generate the money for my preps. I've picked up a huge military store, I picked up huge military storage cans, two functioning military six by sixes, a 1981 VW diesel rabbit that gets 54 miles to the gallon, even my computer, just to name a few. Every tool in my well-equipped home shop, all from Craigslist. When I get tired of a tool or project, I sell it and buy something else. Even the preps I have purchased at the grocery store have been funded by my dealings. Nothing comes out of my family's paycheck. I check for new listings every couple of hours because deals don't last long. I found some people just want stuff gone with no hassle so things get priced low. 
I recently purchased a John Deere riding mower for $100. I then sold the engine for $300 and the carb for $50, and I sold close to every other part in between. Just listen to Steve Harris's shows on generators today. Now someone's agreed to buy the mower deck tonight. I offered to meet him at a home improvement store. I sold him the deck for $100. I walked inside and now owe a $100 10x3 extension cord. The $300 from the engine is going to fund my transfer switch. Great show. Keep up the good work. I don't know if I have to talk about how to make money on Craigslist and eBay and fund your preps out of it, because Reed or Dan, whichever one you are, Dan Reed, Reed Dan, uh, you just did it. And you did a great job of it, and I think that there's a lot to be learned there. Because I hear from people all the time, how do I do this? I don't have any money. And the reality is that, and this is an extension of something I told you guys in 2008. Um, I try not to do a lot of I told you so's, but there's some that we need to go back and look at because there's ongoing lessons from them. In 2008, when I was saying, get out of the stock market now, and I mean, it was so obvious. And people, so ever since that, people are like, well, what do I do with my money? I'm like, dude, I, I don't do financial advice. I give you the macro view, but if, yes, if I see a storm coming, I'll tell you, right? So I, I said, the biggest reason to protect your money right now, to start saving more money right now, to work harder right now while the economy is still functioning, to, to stockpile money, to take a second job, to do whatever you can, to just shove as much money aside as you can for now. And don't buy, I was like, don't buy anything for a couple of months. Just take a, a spending fast. Cause the whole world's about to go on sale. And that's what happened when the recession hit. People ended up in a bad way and started dumping stuff. And people started looking around and going, holy crap, no wonder I'm broke. And this is still going on. This is a, this is a long cycle. And it, the worse things get, the more it will continue. And the better things get, the more it will continue. And I know you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, look, let's say we languish in a sideways skid recession for another five years, like we've pretty much done so far. The stock market goes up, the stock market goes down, but... On the ground, it don't really get any better for people. The unemployment number goes down, but it's because people gave up looking and people took jobs paying half of what they were used to making, and it's not the same as getting your old job back. And it's, that just continues that way. Well, there's still sheds and garages full of all kinds of crap that people start going, God, I need some extra money, this thing's just in the way, and it ends up on eBay and Craigslist and yard sales, etc. Right? Let's look at another scenario. The, the, the false recovery kicks in. The economy begins to look like it's in sustainable recovery. Everybody gets stupid again for a few years while the debt soars and leads to the end game. But for that time being, the economy looks better. Well, what happens? People start to make money again. They start to spend money again. They look at all that junk sitting out there. They want to buy new stuff because now they got new money to buy with their new MasterCard. Their new MasterCard. And what do they do? Well, they got to get rid of some of the old crap to make room for, room for the new crap. So they start dumping it. So either way, you'll see this, this, we've been put into a position where this cycle's going to continue. And then you got pros like Reed, right? Reed is like the guy that understands that not only can I buy this stuff, but if I am smart about what I do with it, I can actually make money with it. Like the, the lawnmower is perfect, the riding mower. Okay, so it, does it run? Yeah. And then you look at it and it's beat to shit. But you know that running motor's worth more money than the guy's asking for it. So you yank the motor out, you clean it up, and you sell it as a motor. And a guy that needs a motor is happy to pay 300 bucks for a motor. 
Uh, and maybe not even for another one just like it. Just a good running motor has a lot of applications. So it's a highly marketable component. Mower decks rust out. So even if the thing had all kinds of linkage problems at all, if the deck's good, again, you know, you can get some money for that. So the deck recoup the entire investment of the hundred bucks, right? And then all the other parts the guy sells make some money. And I think there's a lot of things that can be done like that. You just have to be careful. You have to know what you're buying, why you're buying it, and what you're going to do with it. Or you end up being one of those guys on, you know, like pickers 50 years from now where you got shit everywhere and you don't even know where any of it is. So you want to be careful you don't go there. But an organized process for this. And hey, not everybody has that entrepreneurial bent. There's still huge deals to be found on Craigslist. And I think, and, and eBay as well, but I think Craigslist is a better one for this type of thing. Because it's usually local people, and with these tools, presses, things like that, vehicles, you have to physically go get it. It's not something you don't mail somebody a military 6x6, right? Um, I guess you could have it delivered, but... You get what I'm saying. So I think Craigslist is huge for this, and it's something that we should at least, you know, when you decide I want X, it, don't just go buy it. Stop and think, why do I want it? What's its function? What's its cost? Can I afford it? That type of thing. And then go, well, if I can afford it and it's $600, would it be better if I got it for $300 and had $300 for the stuff that needs to go with it, or to maintain it, or to do something else entirely? And I think the answer to that question will always be, uh-huh, right? So then say, well, can I give it at least two or three weeks of checking Craigslist and eBay, and see if the deal comes up in the next two or three? Can I live without it for that long? You know, Do I need a generator, and I procrastinated, and Hurricane Sandy's about to whoop my ass tomorrow morning, I'm probably not checking Craigslist, right? But... You know, if you live in Arkansas right now, or Texas, or Georgia, you, you probably are not that worried about impending doom and needing a generator, so you might want to check Craigslist. Now, <laughs> a lot of you will want to check Craigslist and eBay in your region for generators in about three weeks. Watch how many people that bought a generator, that don't know how it works, that ended up not needing it, that can't return it, decide they want to sell it. You might find some really good deals there as well. So I think that we need to look at the two sides there and realize that, yeah, making money is a great thing to do with it, but you don't have to do it as a money-making thing. You can also just do it as a money-saving thing. And you'll be surprised at what you'll find if you'll start looking for it. Um, let's take another one. Here's a good one. Um, in episode 1005, you made the comment that there are two things you never buy cheap, garden hoses and extension cords. I'd nominate a third item to that list, tires. I live in a, I've lived in the country all my life. Where I live now, it's just over four miles to the nearest blacktop road. If I put a dollar in the bank every time someone comes out here with their city tires and ends up with one or more flats, I'd have a nice nest egg. I envision countless city folks with their BOV, a big SUV or 4x4 truck all decked out for an emergency, but with the cheapest Walmart tires they could buy. They head for the hills and end up with four flat tires after a few miles of gravel. It simply never occurs to folks that tires that are fine on blacktop may not be fine on gravel. One of the many quotes that my dad pounded into my head goes like this, Every time you're in a vehicle, your life is riding on a half inch of rubber. So don't buy the cheapest tires you can find. Case in point, my own sister, who also grew up in the country, was recently up from Houston for a couple weeks. 
Uh, there was an unofficial detour on three miles of gravel roads due to a new bridge construction. The tires on her van were good by city standards. Before she went back home, she bought three new tires. Maybe city preppers who are planning on heading for the country have already thought of this. However, I know uh, from many firsthand experiences that the average city person is not prepared for gravel roads. Personally, I don't run into any tire. I don't run any tires that are less than 10 ply. Even then, I don't buy the cheapest 10 plies I can find. My own experience based on roads, I drive puts Cooper tires high on the good list. If you don't spend $200 plus on a tire, it won't last long. Even then, if I get half of the miles on on that uh, tire that's rated before it's worn out, I consider myself lucky. Just my two cents, Farron Constable. Um, yeah, here's the thing. I completely agree, but what kind of freaking gravel road do you have that's that hard on the average tire? Um, I, where I have my place, it is a tire destroying machine, but it's not just gravel. It's gravel and rock and lots of hills and some really bumpy stuff. A few of you guys have actually had, a, you know, a cell phone conversation with me while I'm driving up there and it's, uh, It's pretty entertaining, I think, for the person on the other end of the phone when I just climbed the first hill. And, yeah, that kind of road really does tear up tires, and I would put tires on that list as well. The only way I'm going to run cheap tires on a vehicle is probably never going to happen again for the rest of my life because I'm probably never going to be in this situation again for the rest of my life. But, like, when I got out of the Army, my first car I bought out of the Army was a Mustang II. It was like a 76 or something like that, little four-cylinder piece of crap. I paid 400 bucks for it. It needed tires. Um, little, little tires, you know, I think there were 13s on that thing. Maybe there were four, there were 14s, you know, and I think I went to wherever the, I think I went to Sears and like, I need four decent tires so this thing will pass inspection because it's going to expire and put them on there. And I was going to drive that car for less than a year and dump it. And the tires would still look decent enough to sell it and get rid of it and get my 400 bucks back. And it just didn't make sense to go put $800 worth of tires on a $400 car. And I wasn't going to go off-roading with a little Mustang, too, because you'd tear the undercarriage out of it. So that's about the only way that I'd look at low-cost, economy-rated tires. Short-duration, beater vehicle. If you're broke and you're trying to get out of debt and you have an expensive vehicle with payments and you really can't afford the payments, but you've had it long enough that you can dump that vehicle and maybe only have $1,000 worth of the debt to pay off or break even and get out from underneath it, and then your plan is I'm going to go out and buy myself a $1,500 piece of crap car uh, and I'm going to drive that thing uh, until, you know, I, I, I can't see, again, $800, $1,000 worth of tires on, on a beater vehicle. Um That said, you got to have something to depend on. But I, I think that, I don't know, I find it strange that people are having to replace tires just because they're driving on gravel. And I don't know if it's because I just, you know, other than like the one thing I'm talking about, I never was the person for the cheapest tires. And my, my father's business that, that he built in Jacksonville, Florida when I was a kid was a used tire business. So I guess tires are a little bit in the blood, and I know tires fairly well. But I grew up where there were gravel roads everywhere and old coal roads everywhere. And every kid with a beat-up-ass 1970 Monte Carlo or something like that was always on those roads. And I just don't ever remember it being... And you know how kids are. You know, 16, 17-year-old kids with their first car. They have threads thrown through the tires, and they're driving them until they can save... i got to save some money, man. i got to buy tires next week, you know. And then next week, it's more important to go to the beer party. And, you know, it takes three weeks later to replace tires that should have been replaced a month ago. And 
I, I don't know. Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with your assessment, Farron, to buy good quality tires for your vehicle. I think that's a great idea. I just don't know what the hell kind of gravel. I mean, you sound like you have a, a nail bed road or something. Um, so I'd like to hear back from you exactly where the hell are you? And, uh, What kind of gravel roads are these? And has anybody else had this experience? Let me know in the comments section. I also have to say this, it, all this vision of like, you know, I don't know if you're just being facetious or whatever, but for the people that maybe take it seriously, you know, all of the city boys in their big vehicles heading for the hills and the SUV, it's not going to happen. That's Hollywood nonsense. It ain't going to happen. Let's take another one. Uh, here's a good one. Jack, I was thinking the other day of preps that one could make that would have not only utilitarian value if times got tough, but would have some barter or commercial value, and I came up with the idea of tobacco. Problem is, cigarettes have a bit of a limited shelf life. I think a neat idea for a show or a brief expert panel question would be a bit on tobacco storage for a short-term period, say one to five years. Uh, and also a person who has experience in growing tobacco for the long term, say, five years or more. I know some people say tobacco is unhealthy and blah, 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 but in reality, the people the, the people who use it, it will be a very hot commodity during most types of shifts or economic disruptions, especially those uh, in which transport of goods in outlying areas will be infrequent or prohibitively costly. If, say, someone stored away 50 pounds of well-preserved tobacco and associated goods, papers, machines, and such, they might have a high trade advantage over their neighbors who also are well-stocked on ammo, food, water, energy, and medical stuff. Come to think of it, this topic might be a good way to say, segue into why it's a good idea to prep uh, other than so-called luxury items. Once your essentials are taken care of, Not only are these good items, uh, items good for direct barter, but would also be fantastic as items that could be donated to people in need, garner much goodwill. Well, I don't want to go on forever. You do this for a living, so I'm sure you follow where I'm going. Thanks for the show. Take care, Matt. And, you know, Matt, you're right. Maybe I should do a show on, like, some really, you know, considered luxury items. You know, some things like chocolate spring to mind. And people go, well, chocolate's kind of hard to store because it melts and all. Now, you can store it in powdered form, which is the way it was used for a long, long time. And uh, uh, that's one option there. On the tobacco there, here's the thing. You want to store cigarettes long term? I can't help you. Uh, you're talking about really dried out tobacco. And I don't know anything about smoking cigarettes because I don't smoke cigarettes. I'm sure there's people that can give you some ideas on that uh, in the show notes today. Um, but I think storing raw tobacco is a better way to go. And if you look at storing tobacco, that specifically like pipe tobacco, it's got a little bit of moisture left in it, and there's an easy answer. Um, if you buy it in a sealed tin and leave it there, it's pretty much going to store for a long-ass time. If you want to break it up into smaller components or whatever, if you want to grow and process your own that way, um, there's plenty of uh, information out there on how to process tobacco for pipe smoking. Uh, a mason jar, well-packed, closed up. This is, a, this is the thing about tobacco. Uh, and as a person that doesn't smoke a lot but smokes a few cigars here and there, uh, I have cigars that are years and years old. They're sitting in a thing called a humidor. Tobacco that's stored for that type of smoking and pipe and tobacco, uh, pipe and, and cigar tobaccos are kept at just about the same humidity level. Uh, as long as the humidity is where it needs to be and the temperature is reasonably okay, it's going to last and last and last. In fact, a lot of people feel that it actually develops character with age and there's people that age it just to age it. Now, when you take something like a mason jar, 
and you fill it. Now I'm not talking about a quarter full. I'm talking about you know reasonably packed, not super tight, but reasonably packed and sealed up in a mason jar, like you like a canning jar. And you wrench you wrench that um, that ring down on that canning lid so that it's tight and creates an airtight seal, which it will. And remember, this is tobacco. This isn't peaches. We don't have to. I've saw people canning it on YouTube, like actually put it in a steam bath canner, just wait or sealing the top with wax. Just stick it in there and screw it shut and stick it on the shelf, and it will last for damn near ever. Definitely a couple years. So that's that's the easy way to do tobacco. Pipe grade tobacco or tobacco processed for pipe smoking, airtight containers. Keep it in an area that's not like, you know, don't put it out in the sun to bake or anything like that where uh, the moisture content basically collects on the side and moves from one side of the jar to the other. So stable, reasonable temperatures, not in direct sunlight, airtight, good to go, long time. Um, I had uh, a grandfather that smoked pipes. He had tins of tobacco sitting down in the cellar, just tins that you just stick the top on. Some of those tins that he would go occasionally pull out and smoke to pipe tobacco from, you know, were freaking five, six, seven years old. And those weren't even completely airtight. They were just in the right environment. So with tobacco, it's all about uh, that, that environment uh, of humidity and temperature and the ideal is often said to be 70-70, 70 degrees and 70% humidity. Um, cooler is better if you were down 65 degrees uh, or so. Uh, you actually have less chance of mold developing. Uh, and I would add to my little thing about your jars that you're going to store them in, it probably would be a good practical precaution to get something like grain alcohol and you know clean out the insides of the jars and the insides of the lids, the insides of the ring, the rim, everything, wipe that down with grain alcohol, set it aside, give it a few minutes to evaporate off, uh, and that way anything that's living in the jar would be killed and you can take your tobacco and, and pack it and you should be good to go. That's all I would do. Let's take a, uh, another uh, question. Here's an easy one. Can I use the ashes for my wood stove or any, for anything beneficial for my garden? And what about used ground coffee from the coffee maker? What can I do with that? Uh, this is from Bajorn in Denmark. Let's start out with the wood ash. Wood ash is actually a great source of lime and potassium. And it has a very neutralizing effect of soil, moving it toward neutral pH, which is really a good thing in most instances. It's not good uh, for plants that like acid soil, like um, if for flowers, azaleas, or for uh, an edible example would be blueberries. Wood ash and blueberry, probably not a good mix because it's something that prefers a more acidic soil. But anything can be done to excess. So if you just start spreading wood ash all over all the time, all over all the place, you can move the pH actually too more, too much toward, uh, the alkaline, uh, level uh, of things. And you can have too much, uh, potassium. You can have too much lime. So I don't know, you know, things like rose bushes and stuff like that, probably a, a scoop, uh, scattered around them. Uh, once or twice a year is probably plenty of supplement. Um, I, I, you know, spreading it, some of it out on your lawn, you know, probably something in the area of about 10 pounds 
per thousand square feet of utilization is, is what you want to use with wood ash. So if you burn a lot of wood, it's, it's quite conceivable that you might very well produce more ash than you can use. Uh, if, you know, because if you start, if you have, let's say, 10,000 square feet of, of property, which is a fairly sizable property, especially, in, and thanks for writing from Denmark, by the way, especially for Denmark, that'd be a pretty sizable piece of property, 10,000 square feet. You're looking at about 100 pounds of wood ash. Now, if you live in a cold climate, you might produce, you know, way more than that in a year. But it can definitely be applied directly. It should be spread out thinly over the area. They're not left in a big pile. It's probably best used, build yourself a pile of it, and you know, uh, add uh, every time you add to your compost pile, add a couple scoops and mix it in with the compost. It'll help keep the compost in a nice neutral rate and around the, the you know 6.8 to 7.2 uh, range, which is great for compost. It'll add a lot of mineral and nutrient. And the more hardwood you're burning versus softwood, the more minerals beyond the base nutrients that you're going to actually be contributing. And those minerals are great because trees are great accumulators of minerals because their roots are far deeper uh, than a lot of the, you know, the, the other plants and other crops that we would grow. So it can be used for that, and I would say no more than 10 pounds for, for uh, 1,000 square feet per year, and it may be a really good idea to get a soil test done uh, if you're going to use it in earnest to determine, you know, am I deficient in, in, in lime and potassium? And if you are, it's a great additive. If you're not, you want to use care that you don't overdo it. Okay. Now let's move on to coffee grounds. Coffee grounds are one of the best uh, organic fertilizers you can get. Um, they, there's absolutely no harm that can come from using coffee grounds. You can mix them in with your compost as a brown, and they'll do the good carbon addition of the brown, and they'll do a lot of great things for you. You can get a big bucket from your coffee. A lot of your coffee stores, and I'll just go in the Starbucks over here. I don't know what you guys got in Denmark. But you go over and say, can I get coffee grounds? And they'll just drag a bag out. Uh, and you can just take that home and, you know, whenever you're working in your gardens, just spread it around with a trowel and you can just go nuts with that. Worms love it. It's a great worm food. It'll encourage worms to colonize your garden. That's one of the greatest things for fertility. It has a direct uh, fertilizing component to it as it breaks down and decomposes. It's very mild. It's very neutral. It won't harm anything. You can go, you can basically make your backyard smell like an espresso room and you're not going to hurt anything, and you're only going to get good things out of it. The only way I think you could, I mean, if you got stupid, and you ended up with like six inches deep of coffee grounds, and you're trying to grow in the coffee, that might be a problem. But spreading it around and using it like you would use any fertilizer, even at twice the rate you would use uh, a good organic fertilizer, like let's say blood and bone, using double the rate, of, uh, of coffee grounds compared to like blood and bone, no problems at all. And it is a great source of fertility and one of the most wasted sources of fertility out there today. Everybody out there with a garden, you should have a Starbucks or two near you somewhere in this country. Go talk to them. Get those coffee grinds. At least pick a couple bags up a year and spread that stuff out. You will not believe the improvement it will make to the soil structure, the biological life, and other things in your soil. Let's take another one. Okay, this comes from Michigan guy, uh, MI guy, uh, who says, I used to be AZ guy or Arizona guy, so I guess he went from uh, Arizona to Michigan. 
Uh, I can understand why somebody would make that move, and I can understand why somebody might want to make the move the other direction. Uh, get away from the heat or get away from the cold and uh, decide which one you like better. Uh, but this is uh, kind of a serious subject. Jack looks like EMP just became a bigger reality, and it's a link to a video on Boeing. He says, I'm not sure where this will all end up, but hey, our government would never use this on us, right, uh, Michigan guy? So let's... Uh, Let's, let's take a listen to this video off the Boeing website. Actual images of the CHAMP, or Counter-Electronics High-Powered Microwave Advanced Missile Project, this animation shows a simulated weapon flying over selected targets, hitting them with high-power radio wave bursts and defeating their electrical and data systems without causing injury or collateral damage. But it was no simulation Tuesday over the Utah Test and Training Range, where Boeing and the U.S. Air Force Research Laboratory's Directed Energy Directorate successfully flew the first fully operational CHAMP weapon. We hit every target we wanted to. We prosecuted everyone. Today we made science fiction science fact. This video, recorded during an earlier test, shows what CHAMP is capable of. Watch the computer screens in this office as the Directed Energy hits the building. While the computers were knocked out, there is no structural damage. Fade to black. When that computer went out, uh, when we fired, it actually took out the cameras as well. We took out everything on that. It was fantastic. Excellent team. Uh, I mean, like I said, the reason we are successful is due to the team and, and, and the team effort. A non-lethal weapon that can defeat targets without collateral damage is an idea that's been portrayed in television and film for decades. But this, says AFRL champ lead test engineer Peter Finlay, is no movie. We're not quite up to the place where the Star Trek and Star Wars movies are, but this is definitely an advancement in technology to be able to give us an opportunity to do things that we couldn't do before. James Dodd, vice president of Advanced Boeing Military Aircraft, says his team is focused on developing the innovation to protect U.S. troops. We know this has some capabilities and some impact, and so uh, we're really trying to engage the customer and see if there's a way that we could actually get this field and implemented sooner than later. After its first flight, the CHAMP missile flew to an undisclosed location on the test range and the flight was intentionally terminated. Boeing and AFRL teams are now analyzing the data and telemetry from this flight, which not only made history, but stands to change it as well. Well, the video gives a little bit more dramatic effect and understanding, but I think with the audio you heard, you kind of get the point. So, Uh, the way they're, they're describing this thing is it's the CHAMP missile. And the CHAMP missile can be launched and it directs a, a microwave burst that effectively does the same. It's, this is not an EMP. It effectively performs the same, same way as an EMP. It causes the same type of disruption to electronics. The difference being that instead of being a mass widespread thing that Uh, would shut down, let's say, an entire electrical grid. It can be directed at specific areas and direct components of the electronics, which means it could be done um, in a, a kind of a nightmare scenario, 10 or 15 of these things, hitting key points of main electrical grid infrastructure to shut down an entire grid. Let's remember that when 6 million people went without power in Southern California earlier this year and a little bit in Arizona and all that, with some dude in the New Mexico desert and went out there and changed a part. He didn't even do anything wrong. It caused basically a hiccup, brain fart in the grid, and it just shut itself down. So if there were real damage done to major transformer networks and things like that with something like this, to us or us using it on other people, that would be a, a pretty big uh, danger. This is a, a high-tech, high-impact 
uh, life-altering weapon capability that our government now has its hands on. There's a couple things at play here. We'll save kind of the big aha moment for the end. Number one, if they're showing us this now, they've been able to do this for a hell of a lot longer than they say. This, Whenever you hear we have a capability, that means we had the capability and now we're telling you about it uh, because either it's going to come out if we don't or it's gotten to a point where we know we can release it and Boeing wants their stock price to go up, so they say, hey, we've done this. Um, but that capability is now is now probably more developed than we have been led to believe. So uh, when I think about what it takes to make this happen, just the, the mechanics of the disruption itself, uh, I have to look at that and go, there's no reason we couldn't have done this 20 years ago. So how mature is the technology really? Now what's new is these little unmade, here it is, here's the, aha, this is not a missile. Let me say it again. This is not a missile. Did you hear what they said at the end where the flight was intentionally terminated? They didn't say it, it crashed or blew it up. It says the flight was intentionally terminated. To me, you're full of shit. Okay? Or maybe you did intentionally terminate it to hide what this thing is. This is a drone. This is a drone, not a missile. A missile flies through the air and hits something and blows the shit out of it, including itself, right? This flies through the air and sees a building over here and goes, beep, and, and like, you know, Star Trek shit, and oh, all the electronics in that that building fry. And then it keeps going and it picks another target. You hear what he said? We prosecuted multiple targets. So this is something that can fly around and shut shit down. Which means not only can it go in a drone, you, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to mount something like this on the bottom of an F-14 or an F-15 or an F-16 or an F-18, get it? Or on the side of a ship. And you start to realize how dangerous this power is, and that's where we get to the other side. Take all the conspiracy shit away for a minute. And just think about this. The biggest, like, so I'm going to segue here for just a second to make this understandable and, and to drive another important point home. We just had a, a show I did where I said, you know, Little House on the Prairie ain't coming back. There's 0% chance of going back to Little House on the Prairie way of life. And, and Metaphors on the blog says, I think it's foolish to say that because there's no, no way that, you, you know, you say you don't know the future, but this is what I know about reality. Once capabilities are known, people will not rest until they're met. Right, so the reason we're not going back to Little House on the Prairie is because we know what's possible, and even if you took away 50% of our energy, we're still going to be able to use that to do far more than what's ever done in 1885. Okay, because we have the knowledge that, not even the knowledge of how to do it, the knowledge that it can be done. Okay, when you come out with something like this, Every other nation on planet Earth that's an advanced developed nation with an advanced developed military, first of all, already knew because they know what we're doing before you know what we're doing with espionage. Okay, But even if they just found out today, now they have their own program working to develop something like this. Because the fact that it can be done means that you can do it. So... This is, you know, one way to look at this is for our own defense, once you know you can do something, you better be able to do it because if you can't, the people, other people will figure out how to do it and might use it against you. Um, but I think the bigger story here is 
the refusal to call this thing what it is, a drone. And I think that's because people are getting tired of drones, uh, understanding that drones are going to be flying all over this country, spying on average citizens. But that does, that, that, there's no freaking way to convince me that this thing, and they show a thing that's like a mock-up of like uh, a stealth fighter shooting this thing out, you know, like a missile. They're trying to sell the idea that this is a missile. If it can travel, change course, engage multiple targets, do damage to the target, or in the words of this guy, prosecute the target without destroying itself, there's no reason for us to believe that it can't land, take off, and go do it again. Is there? This is a drone. And I'm actually more disturbed by the fact that they're hiding the fact that it's a drone than I am at what it's actually capable of doing, because it leads you to the question of why. Why would you do that? So if this technology is as developed as they say, and I think it's probably more developed than we've been led to believe, there's no reason that this technology now couldn't be used by a police SWAT team. You know, you've got people holed up in a building, pull up a truck, point it at it, down goes the building. Now, is that highly necessary? Not really, because we can pretty much shut power off anywhere we want to with a switch around here, but that might be an excuse for them to have it, right? But somebody that was generating their own power, this could be used to shut them down. Or just the threat. Yet another hammer in freaking Thor's freaking um, quiver, right? Everything about Thor's hammer Well, we're getting to where we have a, a government, a military, a military-industrial complex. They don't have Thor's hammer. They have Thor's freaking quiver. They have so many freaking hammers they can pull out and whack you with. So just the intimidation factor. And what might the U.S. do with this weapon to intimidate other nations? Well, just shut your power off. You want to hack into our computer network? Well, we'll just shut your shit down. You know, and that's... It, the the problem that we have is that the U.S. sells itself as a force of good in the world, and many times is, but equally many times we look at these complex political issues with people in power that we say are dictators, and you look back to how they got there and we put them there. So the problem is that any power will eventually be abused, just like I talked about earlier with a government or a federal reserve or any governing body having the power of monetary creation. It's too tempting not to abuse that power. So this is a dangerous thing that we need to keep an eye on, but I don't know that there's much to be done about it. But again, my concern here, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, you guys know that, but I notice inconsistencies and I notice them very, immediately, and I've looked around a discussion about this and Tin Hat stuff and the military guys that think it's all cool because they just like cool stuff and everywhere in between, and I haven't seen anybody point this inconsistency out yet. It's not a missile. Missiles hit targets. It's a drone. It's a UAV. Okay? It's something that a guy with a little joystick a thousand miles away can fly around and shut off components of an electrical grid, buildings, whatever, 
at will, and that is a dangerous tool. So, again, I don't know if there's anything to be done about it, but, boy, this is something you better keep an eye on. And when I tell you that all these people that are expecting, without rule of law, sea to shining sea, coast to coast, everything's going to be like freaking little house on the prairie with a militia, right? Uh, good militias, bad militias, everybody blowing everybody up. You know, just it, 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 And I say, it ain't going to happen. Because there's too much power and control at the central level and too much distributed power now with military training of law enforcement, etc. This is just one example of that. You can call peak oil all day and night. They don't need a lot of oil to fly 10 of these things around. And why couldn't then that vehicle have multiple capabilities? That vehicle could have gun capabilities, right? So they could fire a uh, chain gun, right? 20 millimeter. It could have electronic uh, electronic prosecution capabilities to shut down electronics. It could have the ability basically to drop bombs. God knows what else they can build into these things. And again, I'll tell you, we're reaching a pretty scary point with technology. We're reaching a point with technology where human beings are either going to figure out how to blow everybody up or how to solve a lot of problems. And uh, let's just hope that In the long run, we start focusing our efforts on solving problems uh, because a technology like this, as scary as it is, if it's possible and you have enemies, you better have it because if you don't, sooner or later, they will. So I don't have an easy answer for you on this one, but it is a frightening technology. I want to end today with some thoughts. First of all, if you're in the path of this hurricane, Sandy, um, Please pay attention to things like evacuation orders and know this. If you're told to evacuate and you don't, uh, I believe in, 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 in rights, uh, and I, I do believe you have a right to be stupid if you want to. Um, but if you have children, please understand that you're making a decision for them that they're not old enough to make yet, and it's probably not right for you to make stupid decisions on their behalf. And when you're told to evacuate, there's probably a reason. Um I would also tell you that you need to think about something very seriously right now if you're uh, where this storm is going to be impacting. Your biggest threat to life and property is probably flooding, uh, especially if you're not directly on the coast where you're going to get the brunt of the winds. There could be some isolated tornadoes and things like that, but that's generally the biggest threat with these storms. And as this thing moves inland over Pennsylvania, uh, it, it's, it's going to slow down. And the amount of rain that it's going to drop is going to be unbelievable. So if you're in any type of floodplain area, you need to really take that into consideration and don't obsess about wind, etc. The other thing, the time of year this is hitting, the place this is hitting, the storm from the north coming in, there's going to be snow, sleet, and ice in certain areas, and that has its own uh, problems. So make sure you're taking this thing seriously. Um, and it may be that a lot of folks are going to be without power and highly indebted to Steve Harris for all the work he's done with power backup systems for us in the past couple months. Um, but I've heard from a ton of you guys telling me how grateful you are that you listen to this show and great guests like Mr. Harris and our other great guests, and you feel prepared. And, and i got to tell you, that makes me feel pretty good. But I've also heard a lot of people say, well, what should we do to prepare for this storm? And I feel like the same stuff you do to prepare for everything else. And what I want the lesson of Hurricane Sandy to be is 
for everybody, including those you know like me, that I'll be out shoveling compost in a couple hours from right now while I'm recording this. Uh, I got a half a truckload of compost that needs to be uh, distributed on my property. Uh, and it's not going to really affect me directly. And if it ha anything affects any of my listeners or anybody I know, any of my friends up there, it'll, it'll affect me emotionally, but it's not going to physically affect me. But I should learn, once again, that just when you think you're in a position where there ain't that much to worry about, something will happen. I mean, here, it's, it's almost November. It's almost November, And New York City is probably ground zero for landing of a hurricane. And people know that hurricanes can happen in New York City, but they don't really tend to take it seriously. They seem it is a very unusual event. It's not a very likely thing to happen on any given day. And the problem with a lot of threats that are like that is we have a tendency to say, since it's not likely, I don't need to worry about it. But something like a hurricane in New York isn't really not likely. It's not likely... You know, most of the time. But the fact that it will happen at some point is 100% certainty. And I think that we need to learn that there's a lot of things out there like that. Um, is it highly likely that North Texas will get a blizzard? No. Will it ever happen? Would you call 11 inches of wet snow a blizzard, especially in the south? I would, and it did just a couple years ago. We need to realize that there are threats to our daily lives all the time that are not the sexy Hollywood EMPs, that they're not the Mad Max scenarios, that they're not, you know, revolution and the lights go out because some guy with a thumb drive did something or whatever the hell the, the end thing on that's going to be. Um, it's just the fact that Mother Nature is one hell of a big bitch when it comes right down to it. Mother Nature can provide us all we need to stay alive, but she can kick your ass in a heartbeat. And she will if you give her half a chance. And some of the biggest threats that we have to contend with are tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, uh, even volcanic eruptions. That's something that, like, you know, people, I don't really worry about volcano. I remember Mount St. Helens, and it could have been worse. And there's, you know, I mean, tsunamis that are in conjunction with earthquakes or vol volcano eruptions or man-made disasters that are you know catastrophic like nuclear plants um i still say to this day that I'll, and you notice all the hype about fukushima kind of just withered away even from those really hyping it but man i'm glad i don't live in tokyo I, that's a totally different scenario there's no reason something like that can't happen here so i just want to urge you today as we get close to the end of a month And we're coming up on a time where we are seeing something kind of out of the normal that's going to impact the lives of millions of Americans. If you're not in the impact zone, don't just look at it as, oh, that's too bad that that happened. Or I hope I can help. I mean, I'm glad you feel that way, and I think we should help. And I'm sure there'll be opportunities to provide relief for people that need it. But you need to look at it more of a lesson is this is the kind of thing that we do this for. This is why we're prepared. And I know from hearing from those of you up in that area that are well prepared, how much better you feel now than you might have a year ago if the same thing had happened a year ago. And that's great. But the temperance there. It's just because you're prepared. Remember, you cannot be prepared for everything. And the first rule of survival is to stay alive. So please follow evacuation orders and follow common sense things. 
I don't care how much food, water, ice, electricity, generation, fuel, whatever you have stored up, if an oak tree lands on you and squishes you into a flat little spot, you're dead. If floods come along and drowns you, you're dead. So please think about these things and don't feel overconfident because you're prepared, but feel like you're much more likely to get through these situations because you're prepared. And take a little dose of, dose of healthy reality from the fact that no matter how prepared you are, there's still things that are outside of your control. And that's why we need to have two kinds of preparedness in place. And one is all the stuff and the things and the components. But the more important one is being prepared emotionally, mentally, spiritually. So when something happens outside of what we physically prepared for, we can adapt to it, overcome it, and figure out how to move on to the next step. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you